Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Miss Calendar Kitty Nikian With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 5. Hello, this is your host, J. Daniel Sawyer. I've been really busy and didn't have a chance to get anyone else to do it, so you're listening to Episode 5 of Free Will, and this is the story so far. Thurston Appleby Shaw, otherwise known as Volish, was last seen giving the eulogy for his friend and lover, Scott Walters. But his intervening days have not been good, nor his nights restful. Meanwhile, pushing toward Earth orbit, Joss Kyle's ship Fugitive plays host to a civil war all its own, hinging on the turn of a card. And now, Episode 5 of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 19. Luna City. 21 November, 2129. Sometimes, a window only shows itself rather than what's on the other side. The floor-to-ceiling quarter-pipe windows in the Grissom spaceport didn't seem to much care about the bustle inside, nor the comings and goings of cargo ships, transports, and passenger liners outside. The barrel-chested hulk of a man who leaned his forehead against it didn't think it would have noticed if he punched a hole in it. Today, he wasn't Volish. He wasn't even Thurston Appleby Shaw. He was just a man who, no matter how long he stared at the window, couldn't bear to focus on his own reflection. More than two weeks now since Volish had given Walters the satisfaction he deserved, fifteen days since the men had left that piece of Terran dog shit out on the loading ramps with a knife in his chest and a hole in his suit. Percy was the only name the right hand had given him. So long as he lived, Volish didn't reckon he'd ever be able to stand being in the same room with anyone who even carried the name. But it was worse than that. Volish hadn't killed anyone since he'd bent a chair over the head of that mug in that bar on Sidon, the night that God's man found him at the arse end of the hardest bender of his life. It hadn't bothered him then. It was kind of self-defense, almost. The ombudsman was glad to see him shipped home to Luna to face a mercy of a sentence, six years probation, and Volish had taken the second chance to learn about the oil from the man who'd scraped him up off the pavement and showed him what Jesus meant. That man had gone along to Jesus now. Good thing, too. He'd never have countenanced Volish killing someone for revenge. Didn't matter if that's how it was down on the docks where the law didn't particularly give a fuck so long as you didn't bother it. Didn't matter that it was the right hand that gave him permission, or that the little shit they'd all rubbed out was probably the one that set the bombs all around. Didn't matter, because that wasn't why Volish had done it. And he knew it. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because he hated. 
When he slid his knife in between that boy's ribs, he'd liked it. He'd only been happy about it until after the funeral, but that didn't change the fact. He was a murderer, plain as the spear in Christ's side. He didn't much care for Rome, and he didn't have any use for the fucking Pope. Hated the way they still played cover my ass rather than tending to the light of truth and admitting that the secret gospel came from above. But there wasn't any higher authority he could go to. He was sure Jesus wouldn't listen to him, not until he'd done his penance, and he needed someone to tell him what that was. In his hand, pressed against the glass, Volish held a little recorder. He spoke into it, pretending it was a priest's ear. He told it every detail he knew, every smidgen of his guilt, every scrap of truth his tired soul could come up with. When it was done, he put it in his pocket and dared to look at his reflection in the glass, but he couldn't bring himself to meet his own eyes. Alone in the crowd, he turned away from the vista and headed 50 meters along the dock. When he got to his office, he'd load the recording into an email and send it off to the bishop that handled remote confessions back in Rome, along with an offering. They'd send him penance, and then they'd forget about it, because confessions were sacred. Then, maybe, Jesus would talk to him again. Chapter 20 Fugitive 21 November 2129 It was a battle meditation. Each spade, each club, each diamond a spike to ram straight through the nearest available heart, every card falling like a guillotine blade, singing. This was what the chase was about. Even better than the final capture in the adrenaline, these little moments where a man like Alex Hart could sit across from his quarry and size him up for the takedown. Rare as an honest client, there had been maybe four such moments in her lifetime so far. Now, five. Allie couldn't resist mentally slipping into Alex as she sat across from Joss. As Alex, he couldn't touch her. There was nothing but the hunt and the game. It got her ready for what would happen the moment they docked. As Alex, nothing of the man she'd seen in the last week mattered. His cruelty, pragmatism, manners, curious deference, none of it. Alex's heart knew nothing of Joss Kyle except his convenient presence at the table. The man was a mark, an object for Alex's collection. I'm out. It's yours. The slippery fucker tossed his hand in. Alex pushed the deck across the table and nodded, seating the deal. Briggs picked them up and shuffled them, fingering them like a man itching for a cigarette. Alex wasn't worried about him palming a card this time. He was in short sleeves and was carefully keeping his hands open and easily visible. He'd have to be a sleight-of-hand expert to hide a card from Alex this way, and Alex was watching very closely. After his third shuffle, he set the deck down as if it had suddenly become unworthy of his attention. He stood up from the table and made his way toward the galley cabinets. It's your deal, Alex said. I know. Briggs, 
Allie might be willing to indulge the Joss Kyle nonsense, but Alex never would, rustled around a bit more, and emerged with a couple squeeze bottles. You take your tea cold, right? Alex nodded. Briggs yanked the self-heat tab on one bag, but left the other alone, and returned to his seat. Alex reached out and took the cold squeeze bottle from him and sipped at it. That's 10,000 locks you owe me. I noticed. I don't take checks. Dry sardonicism was one of the side benefits of the persona. The phenomenon of Alex's heart always had a few surprises up his sleeve, even for Allie. It wasn't just that he was intimidating, or that being him meant that commanding a room or a table was deliciously easy. He also made life simple. Cost-benefit analyses, probabilities, risk assessments, all unclouded by the knotty, mixed agendas that dominated Alyssa's thinking. The Tannic Tea cemented that reality. Alex's opponent took up the deck once again, and tapped it twice on the table surface. I guess we'll have to find another way to settle up. He dealt one card to each of them. New game. High card gets the answer. The answer. Any single question except where we're going. Assuming you'll match the stakes. Alex, being a man of few words, wasn't normally caught at a loss for them. He covered his surprise with another sip from the tea bottle. I don't take rhetoric either. Suit yourself. Briggs retrieved the cards and folded them back into the deck. Good. Now he'd deal a proper card game and stop with his pathetic mindfuck attempts. But as Briggs shuffled, the partition between Allie and Alex slid back a little. Joss was offering her information. There was an even chance it was another con, but even bad information could be helpful if she could catch the angle he was working. Alright. I'll answer anything that doesn't compromise a client's privacy. Fine. Her opponent set the deck down and reissued the deal. One to her, face down, and one to himself, also face down. Allie took her card and held it, thinking of what she would ask. Turn him. Allie flipped her card against his. Her jack trumped his eight, spades over diamonds. Now all she needed was a question, something that might help transplant her luck from the card table to the rest of the ship. I want to know why they're looking for you. Who? Nuh-uh. It's my question. Why are they looking for you? This was all Allie's show now. Alex knew how to play cards, but Allie knew how to probe a suspect. Briggs leaned back. I don't play by schoolyard rules, and the bully didn't like it, so he set me up for a fall. Who? Uh-uh-uh. Even Briggs' mockery was consistent. That was the question. Another round? Hit me. Briggs spooled out another two cards, reached for his own, and flipped it against Allie's. He showed a six of hearts against her, too. You're a Catholic. It used to be important to you. When was the last time you prayed? What kind of question is that? It's my question. I'm waiting. Allie measured her breaths. She hadn't thought to take personal questions off the table. I can't remember. Deal. Next time she wanted to draw, she was going to try to niggle past that armor plating he wore around him so she'd have a good place to stick a knife in. But the cards gave the baton to Briggs again. What if... Just hear me out. What if there was a way for you to fulfill your contract, collect on what I owe you, and find out who's been pulling both our strings all this time? Allie held his gaze for a solid minute as she tried to pull Alec's heart back over her like a cloak. The persona may have started life as a cover, even a burdensome one, but in recent days his detachment, his sadism, and his asexuality came more and more as a welcome relief. He didn't care two shits for Reuben Briggs or Jim Hartman or Revolutions. 
He only cared about the game, and the money, naturally. But Alex didn't have anything Allie could use against Briggs. For this, she was on her own. Just how stupid do you think I am? Mm, stupid enough to make a leap into a closing hatchway on a departing ship for the sake of a pittance commission for one. Allie reached for the deck and flipped over two more cards, then took her win. What could make the illustrious Reuben Briggs sell his soul to a bunch of criminals and traitors in the colonies? Was it just the money? Or did that redhead kill your brains with her snatch? With the same people you were working for, you mean? Briggs filleted the straw in his squeeze bottle as if he'd just made a profound point. Answer the question. Allie crossed her arms across her chest and attempted to look as bored as possible. If her irritation showed, he'd have another toehold on her, and he'd already found too many. That's an... Briggs stopped, then appeared to reconsider. His face seemed to open, and a smile tugged at the corners of his mouth. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. <laughs> really? Allie laughed. The notion that he expected her to believe him in the first place tickled her a lot more than it should have. Try me. Briggs regarded her for a moment further, then shrugged. When he continued, the caginess in his manner had disappeared. <sighs> I didn't switch sides. U.S. policy favors colonial independence. I helped craft that policy. That's a thin veil for murder and treason. <laughs> Coming from you, that's nearly a compliment. I've never killed anyone. As soon as the words were out of her mouth, Allie cringed. Haven't you? That is interesting. Briggs brushed the cards out from between them and leaned forward. You didn't answer my question. What if there was a way for both of us to get what we want? There isn't. She wasn't going to give him another inch. He was already hovering too close to... something. Even if there was a way, he'd have an angle to cheat his fate again. There is. And it'll pay you enough to cover your contract and get away from your husband. Allie gave herself a count of five, then stood calmly and strode toward the door. Briggs had cost her everything. Now he was worming his way inside her head to fuck with her. The whole question game was another con, and she'd nearly fallen for it. Again. Reuben Briggs asking her for help? Preposterous. Isn't that the game you wanted the other day? His voice caught her at the door, but she ignored it just as he'd ignored her the other day. She wasn't going back. She'd sit in her room and read. Alex's heart was useful, but he couldn't stand up to Briggs, not in this kind of game. The fast-fingered politician would stack the deck on her and use it to play her every time. Insofar as she could trust anything anymore, she could trust that. She hooked a left at the door and continued at a neutral pace down the blank, white hall to her quarters. Alyssa! He was in the hall behind her now. How did you get the job? She caught herself at her door. What job? On Sidon. Looking for me. It was a public bounty. We keep tabs on those things. What he didn't know wasn't going to hurt her. What was the price? Fuck off. I'll double it. Like hell. She entered her quarters and locked the door behind her, sat down on the bed and punched the library up on the terminal. But she could still hear him through the door, ranting about patriotism. You're wrong, Alyssa. The U.S. doesn't have the ability to hold an entire planet or police all the shipping lanes. If this goes on, they'll overextend themselves and the Persians will make a move and America will lose. You think I'm on the wrong side in this war? Fine. But I've got a way for you to get rid of a traitor in your own government and make a bundle on the takedown. 
And after it's over, if you still want to turn me in, I'll go with you. Allie said nothing. Much as she wanted it to, the sound of the ship throbbing beneath her couldn't drown out the cacophony of competing interests in her head. She knew, goddammit, she was certain that Briggs was a cheat. She knew he was a traitor, that he was wanted for selling state secrets. She'd watched him shoot and maybe kill his compatriot at point-blank range. She'd watched him shake down Reeves, the canniest operator she'd ever met. There was no reason in the world to give him a moment's credence, and she was stupid to even consider it. And yet, something in her wanted to trust him, ached to trust him. Maybe she'd just been lonely for too long, or she missed working with a partner. Maybe some of the things he'd said made some kind of sense, but she didn't trust her own judgment enough to even begin ferreting through it. Prayers for guidance wouldn't help either. God wouldn't listen to her, not now. Until she found a way to sort that out, she was on her own. Over the next hour, Allie paced back and forth, mumbling to herself, kicking the bulkheads, trying to find a way not to go insane. Try as she might, she couldn't ignore what he said. There had to be some way to figure out if he was telling the truth. If he was right, if he was even half right, then she had to do something. If he really had the power to save her country and the people in it, and she didn't help, then all the blood that came after would be on her hands. But if it was a bluff, then she could well be an accomplice to whatever atrocities his harebrained scheme accomplished. She felt like a fox with lard on its tail, running in circles to catch the imaginary prey until it wore itself out. Allie lay down on her bunk, but she couldn't sleep. She wouldn't be able to either until she had some kind of plan. Hauling herself to her feet, she tramped to the door, then through it, then up to the bridge and rang the bell. Come in. Briggs' voice rang over the speaker. The hatch slid to one side, revealing Briggs sitting in his chair with his back to her. What do you want, Alyssa? Prove it. What, that the U.S. is on a self-destruct course? That would be a hell of a thing to prove. Prove that you believe it. Give me a good reason to trust you. Briggs turned around to face her. You have to have faith. Bullshit. He wouldn't be leading her up this garden path if he didn't need her for something. You want me. Convince me. He sat there, looking at her. Not looking through her this time, but looking straight into her, as if he were trying to figure out just what might constitute proof in her universe. Without any explanation, he stood up and walked past her out the door. She had little choice but to follow. He stopped in the infirmary, stripped his shirt off, and laid his pasty carcass down on the examination bed. He turned to face her. I'll make you a deal. I'll give myself up now. To you. Right. You want proof? Computer, open a new archive. Name, Hartman 1. Transfer in the deeds to Fugitive and Phalanx. Copy in all files from Briggs Run 5 and journal entries from 2128 onward. Archive time lock, 3 January 2130, 1300 hours GMT. Accessibility sunset, 1500 hours same day. Encode to Alyssa Hartman's voice print. Now. He turned his attention back to Allie again. When we're done, it's all yours. 
All the files, all the surveillance, the ship, and the bar. You ran from Washington with a shirt on your back. You expect me to believe you wouldn't do it again. Look in the third drawer on your left there. Allie opened it. Inside, she found an assortment of syringes, bagged and strapped down to keep from shifting when the ship maneuvered. The section to the right had more of the same, bundled with what looked like small remote controls. On your right, you see about half a dozen needles bagged up with switch boxes? Yeah. Bring one here. Briggs lay on his back and splayed his left hand out near his sternum between his nipples, palpating as if he were looking for something. She saw no reason not to comply. Now take the remote out and press your thumb to the scanner, then tap the left buttons on the side three times. The remote control was about five centimeters on a side, just about as large and gaudy as a piece of costume jewelry. There was a hook on one edge for a lanyard, a glass surface on a flat square, she assumed this was the scanner, and one button each along the right and left sides. What is this? It's a leash. Tap the button. She shrugged and did as he asked. A little green light on the top edge blinked three times, then went dark again. Good. Next, take the syringe and pull the safety cover off. Press the point in here. He tapped a spot next to his sternum. Between my ribs. That would put the needle right next to his heart. Lovely. He was psychotic now, too. Allie pressed the needle in till it broke the skin, and Briggs winced. All the way, he said. She complied. Once the syringe was into the hilt, she pressed the plunger, sending whatever was in there into the pericardium. Then she withdrew the needle. So what's this? She held up the remote. He ignored her. Computer, set the expiration date January 3rd, 2130, 1500 hours. The AI beeped its compliance. On my next command, arm the device and put the archive in escrow for delivery to Alyssa Hartman if, and only if, I am present, alive, and well on this ship during the time lock window. Confirm. Confirmed. Awaiting completion code. Said the AI. Joss nodded to the device in Alyssa's left hand. That's my leash. You've just injected me with an explosive. Unless you disarm it, it will explode on January 3rd. If I'm ever more than a mile away from you, it'll explode. If I piss you off, you can trip it with a code I'm sure you'll look up online. But if you kill me, you get nothing. You disarm it with the button on the right of that safety device. It will only work with your thumbprint, and only if it has a pulse. I'm now at your mercy. Allie blinked a couple of times, letting the new information sink in. He was serious. He might be crazy, but he believed what he was saying. So what if I just let you die? You won't. You want to win. You want me to march in there in handcuffs right in front of you. So I'll make you a deal. You help me out, and you get everything. If I die, you get nothing. If you aren't on the ship with me on January 3rd to collect your fee, you get nothing. If I'm still breathing and we win, I give you the archive, you disarm the bomb. The ship will obey you, I'll let you turn me over to Reeves along with all the documentation in that archive, and if he doesn't pay you, you can keep the bar and the ship. Now do you believe me? Alyssa nodded. Do we have a deal? Somehow it was a con. It had to be. There was no way Reuben Briggs would just surrender like this, not unless he actually believed what he was saying. He was a politician. He didn't know the meaning of the word truth, and yet... 
Looking down at that little remote, she knew that if she looked the device up on the net, his story would check out. He'd put himself in a position where he couldn't bluff. The best he could do was cheat. And he was a cheat. But he also needed her. He wouldn't go to the trouble otherwise. Not when he could dump her out an airlock or sedate her and drop her on a space station. Yes, she said, still unable to believe what she was doing. We have a deal. Computer, complete the transaction. Authorization, runner one. Transaction completed. The ship's silence hung between them for a moment. Then Alyssa found a stool in the corner and sat down on it. So, she said, what's the plan? You've been listening to Episode 5 of Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Miss Callender as Alyssa Hartman and Kitty McKeon as Fugitives AI. Some sounds courtesy of the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright Kitty McKeon and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1999 and 2011, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2013, Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Free Will is a story told in five parts. Up till now, you've been listening to part one, which is called Captivity and Other Clean Escapes, and it runs the first 150 pages of the book. What you've just heard is the second to last episode of part one, and you know what that means. Next episode, we hit the end, and you all know how I like to handle endings. Don't worry, there won't be a break between part one and part two. It's just a story structure thing, and it actually governs the way the entire antithesis progression is put together. Five books, each of them a different act in a five-act play, each book containing five acts, most of them subdivided into five parts. Classic dramatic structure works in five acts, like a Shakespeare play. You can break it down a few ways, but the basic notion has the acts going something like this. Introduction, rising action, climax, falling action, and denouement, or resolution. Predestination, Act 1 of the Antithesis Progression, had four parts. The denouement was one chapter long, the final chapter of the book, not quite long enough to get its own part. Free Will, Act 2 of the Antithesis Progression, has five parts. Each part is one act of the classical dramatic structure. But Free Will is also composed of nine separate novellas, each written as a separate story, then woven together after the fact. I wrote Joss and Allie's arc straight through, and the Moon Girl's arc straight through, and the Washington arc straight through, and so on. Turned out this was the only way I could keep track of everything well enough to make it all work. I worked from a master timeline showing all of the intersections between the novellas, and then picked which storyline to slot those crossover events in by whose point of view they got told from. And as I'm writing Avarice, I'm doing the same thing. These stories have officially gotten too big for my brain, but it does mean that my whiteboards get a good workout. 
So what we wound up with, structurally speaking, is a series of Russian dolls, a five-act series made up of five-act volumes, each of them comprised of numerous story arcs with a five-act structure, themselves composed of scenes and smaller arcs following a three-act structure format, which, since I'm already way too far down this rabbit hole, I'll explain a whole other time. Of course, this is just writer geek stuff, but what it means for you is that what you're seeing in Free Will is the rising action of the saga. No matter how intense it gets, you're in for even more intensity in books 3 and 4, since the climax will actually stretch between those two books. I hope you got your seatbelts fastened. Now, this episode is pretty late, later than I expected, and some of you got a little worried. Please, please accept my abject apologies. Sometimes, no matter how many contingencies you prepared for, life deals you one more. In my case, since the last time we talked and now, we've recorded the narration for Credrat, I went down for over a week with the Mongolian death flu, we installed a new animation bench, Shady's computer crashed and came back to life, and we got several more episodes ahead on Rough Cutting Free Will. That means that we've now got enough episodes at the ready to take you all the way through the holiday season. And the things that we've got in store for you... Well, you're going to have so much fun. Speaking of which, I've got two things coming up very soon that you might want to know about. The first is that I'm getting together with Chris Lester to record the first Dealing In episode since the podcast's resurrection. If you have questions, comments, or complaints that you'd like to hear addressed, or an argument that you'd like to start, now's the time to send in feedback. If not, we'll be entertaining anyway, so don't worry too much. The second thing is this. From time to time, I've been known to do a Christmas special. A few years ago, for example, you heard my psychotic rendition of A Visit from St. Nicholas, which forever ruined the story for many of you. This is the kind of thing I consider a good time, and it seems only appropriate that I do one this year, but I'm running thin on ideas for stories to desecrate. So if you have a favorite classic story or poem that is in the public domain, and you'd like to hear me give it my unique interpretation, drop me a suggestion. So from all my insanity to all of your gently receptive, corruptible brain cells, happy Thanksgiving. Remember that you can send me questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats via email at feedback at jdsawyer.net, leave comments on the blog at jdsawyer.net, tweet me at dsawyer, or leave voicemail at 612-567-7595. And if you're enjoying yourself, please do tell your friends. Post a review on iTunes, blog about us, tweet about us, and pelt your enemies with CD or memory stick copies to get people hooked, or give them copies for Christmas. And remember that you can buy my books just about everywhere, including signed paperbacks at jdsawyer.net, or you can leave a tip in the tip jar at jdsawyer.net, a portion of which goes to our masterful composer, Danny Shade. I'll see you next week with another episode of the next 10,000 hours and the week after that with another installment of Free Will. And until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. Now that Volish is back in play, what's in store for him? Will Joss keep his deal with Alyssa? And exactly how does he intend to use her? And perhaps most importantly, Has everyone forgotten about the Moon Girl? What fate awaits her on the lunar surface? Find out 
next time. And until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.